Amen. All right. Hand claps for Anisha. Yeah. All right. I got to give you a couple of real quick things right off the bat. The first one, your boy is old. We played soccer on Saturday. I'm hurting. So I won't be moving around as much. My ankle feels like it's about to fall off. This guy knows what I'm talking about. So first thing. Second thing, uh, yeah, I just want to say shout out to you for being here. Again, you know, that summertime vibe. I got my dad sending me pictures of his time at the beach. Meanwhile, I'm here with y'all. I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. I really am. I love you. You know that I'm kidding because I don't even like the beach. Um, so, yeah, just shout out to you guys. Now, real quick, um, what we are going to do today, we're going to dive in pretty much right away. We're going to continue on in the Ten Commandments. But today there's a tricky commandment, which is do not commit adultery. And um, I'll be honest, when, when I started studying when I started looking at it, I was, I was put in a hard place for a lot of pastors, which is I could take this and talk about a biblical principle that is true, that is faithfulness, sexual purity and sexual wholeness and sexual faithfulness, and just run with that and teach that biblical principle and be like, yeah, that's true. It may not necessarily be what this verse is talking about explicitly or contextually, but that's true nonetheless, and run with that. And everyone here would be cool, but I would go home and have this kind of like, buggy feeling because of my nerdiness, knowing, like, I don't think that's what this is necessarily saying. Or I could do the hard work of presenting you with what this is actually showing us, what it's telling us, and then from there show how the Bible actually comes together in a beautiful way as an unraveling story to show us the vision of God for families and for you and his heart for the idea of family. And also, in that moment, probably show us how dangerous it is to base our definition of God or definition of anything off of just one verse from the Bible. As you might expect, the fact that I'm bringing this up means that I've elected to take the harder road today. So what's going to happen is I'm going to stick closer to these notes than I usually do. I'm not even going to get over to the TV. I'm just going to look down here. And y'all know I love, I love touching this TV and pointing at it. So the fact that I'm not going to do that means that I'm serious about sticking to these notes today. Because we have a lot to work through and not that much time to get through it. I don't want to keep you here insanely long. And I also want you to see what's happening here because it's really cool once we start to see it. I think it gives us a beautiful vision for family. I think it gives us a beautiful vision of God. I think it gives you a beautiful vision for what he, he has and what he desires for you. But it's going to take some work to get there, as many things do in the Bible. And if it's work that we're not familiar with, you may kind of... You may kind of be like, man, that takes a lot. But, but once we start reading the Bible in a way where we're doing the heavy lifting, doing the hard work, it can actually is a blessing. So let's get started. Because seventh commandment, commit adultery. Do not commit that. Not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. Um, and here's the thing. What I think that we're all going to get to at this point as we get started, right from the jump, I, I want you to kind of take this and, and hide it away. And we're going to build off of this through the course of the next several minutes that God desires healthy families made of whole people that show his heart to the world. That's where I think when we start at Exodus 20, verse 14, we start to work our way through the whole Bible, and this is what I think we end at, that God desires healthy families made of whole people that show his heart to the world. And we're going to actually work through this in each one of those statements, that God desires healthy families. Second, we're going to work through uh, God helping or, or desiring to help people be more whole, and then finally we're going we're gonna to work through how that shows his heart to the world. So let's get started with that first idea, which is God desires healthy, we're going to add something here, healthy and protected 
families, that God desires healthy and protected families. And we're gonna start with simply Exodus 20:14. And so if you would take a look right here, Exodus 20:14, pretty simple, pretty straightforward, do not commit adultery. It's not wild here. We're not, we're not doing something crazy. The thing is, in order to understand what's happening in this verse, more than the language right now in this verse, what we need to first understand is how the Israelites were applying this command. If we don't understand how they're applying this command, we won't really understand what's happening here and, and really maybe understand some of God's heart in it. Now, here's the thing. I wish I could say that the Israelites applied this command in a way that was really about like sexual wholeness and sexual purity and the idea of sexual faithfulness. Um, but, but I'm gonna be honest, when they get this command, that's not how they apply it. That's not how this is applied. That's not what's going on here in the explicit way. In fact, the application of this text becomes so narrow uh, that it is almost barely able to capture the vision of God uh, and for families at all. What do I mean by that? I mean that this verse, as it was applied in the Old Testament, what, as we start to learn further, as, as we see Moses start to apply laws and, and give out consequences, this verse was only applied to married women who slept with another man or men that slept with a married woman, and that was it. And that was it. Therefore, if, a non-married, uh, if non-married people slept together, they would not be considered guilty of adultery from this law as it was applied. That's not, they would be expected to get married. That's one thing. If they, if they got it on, and the people around them knew about it, they'd be like, y'all gonna have to get it. This kind of sounds a little familiar to me, I don't know. But what I'm getting at is that that would be an expectation. Be like, hey, y'all had sex, therefore you need to get married. Now here's the thing. Um, never mind, I don't need to go into that. Uh, again, this is why looking at the notes is gonna be important today because I wanted to go off on a tangent and I didn't. Come on, y'all, this is good for me. Okay, now, <laughs> y'all are, <laughs> I hate y'all low key right now, but okay, so. Likewise, and this is the one that's gonna be really, really hard to swallow, okay? Really hard to swallow. If a married man slept with a non-married woman, he also would not be considered guilty of adultery. He actually uh, would be expected to marry that woman and take another wife. And so those are the exact applications of this text during this time. That the main idea is that if a married woman slept with another man, or if a, a, a man slept with a married woman, that was considered adultery. Everything else would not be considered adultery, though there were other consequences to it. Um, and I'm not going to lie, studying this week, this is really challenging. I don't like it. I do not like what's happening here. I don't like once you study how this is applied and what's going on and how they're taking this commandment and how it's being teased out in their culture and in their environment, it, it quite frankly makes me really discouraged and it made me really frustrated. But here's the thing, I wanna make two points from here that as I studied, brought some relief to my heart and started building out a, a bigger vision of what's happening here. First, the narrowness of this application, the narrowness of, of this verse and how it's applied is people's, it's not God's. And so God gives this pretty broad command. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago when it talked about parents that the Ten Commandments are oftentimes taken and they're culturally applied. We go, okay, here's how I should live. And we talked about from the very first week that that becomes almost like this sort of weird gospel, this sort of weird thing where we go, if I live like this, then I earn God's approval. I earn his affection. 
when actually the Ten Commandments were never given as a way to earn God's approval or affection. They were a way of life given to people that God had already saved. So he doesn't, we said this on the first week, God doesn't give commands, then save, then saves. He saves and then he gives the commands, right? So this is a way of life for people that have been saved and redeemed by God. And as he gives them, that doesn't mean he gives them to perfect people. It means that he gives them to imperfect people. And as a result, the way they take these broad applications, these ideas that are not meant to show us how to navigate every situation of life, but give us principles to live by, this turns into sometimes misapplication. And in this moment, the narrowness of this application is absolutely people's application, not God's. Nowhere does God endorse polygamy, having multiple spouses. Uh, he doesn't endorse uh, applications that seem to treat women unfairly. Uh, that's not God's character, and I don't think that's God's design for the world. However, the thing that I want to highlight here that's very important is that he does tolerate, he does tolerate imperfection as he moves his vision into the future. He does tolerate these imperfect applications as he moves his vision into the future. And I think that's the case for this specific verse, okay? He's tolerating a misapplication and a, a, a kind of narrow application of his, of his idea because he's trying to move his vision for family into the future. Now, that brings me to the second point, which is this, that I think God tolerates this application because one huge part of his vision is being lived out through their misapplication. It's not captured well, they're not applying it well, but there's one specific part of God's vision for family that is being captured well here and that's that God wants to protect and keep families healthy. That's, I think, the fact that they're accomplishing one little thing, and it's, other than that, it's a pretty big miss, if I'm being honest. But the fact that they're accomplishing one little thing means that God is compassionate, he's tolerant, and he's merciful to move his vision down the road, even if people are misapplying it, he's moving his vision of family down the road, and it's, for the sake of them doing the one thing that they're doing well, which is to protect and keep families healthy, right? That God tolerates this misapplication because he wants the Israelites to do at least this one thing right, to keep families together and to keep families healthy. That, that, that had practical implications in their day when it came to things like workers and kids. And, and this isn't a society where like, you can have a kid and they go out and buy their own property. Like, you know, your parents want you to buy a house and have all like, to have the American dream, the American dream doesn't exist in this system. They only have a select bit of property. That property is going to the next person. That property is going to the next one. So there was a practical implications, financial implications, like, like economic implications, uh, societal implications. There's a lot of things happening here. Uh, but at the same time, it also, again, laid the groundwork for God to push his vision into the future. Now, here's the thing. This is what I want to I pause here, and I just want to ask the question, what does this tell us then about God's heart? I think the first thing is that he's really compassionate. Let me be very honest with you. It's really easy to sit here and read these words and be like, man, these people missed the mark super bad. They're totally jacking up what God said and not for a second look at your own life and be like, man, I am really misinterpreting, misapplying what God said. I'm jacking this up real bad. And if our hearts go, man, God should have dealt with them people because this is unfair and unright, then it would be really hypocritical for you to not look at yourself and be like, I hope God deals with you while you're looking in the mirror. 
I hope God deals because you're not fair and you're not right. And yet because we have a compassionate and merciful God, he can see a misapplication, a misinterpretation, a mess up, a, a mishap, a struggle, and to say, hey, for the sake of my kingdom, for my vision, for the sake of people in general, I'm going to be merciful and compassionate. And he moves it down the road. I want you to know that I think that extends to you. Let me be very honest with you, and I've had to wrestle with this this week. You do not have it figured out. You do not have it figured out. Theologically, you do not have it figured out. For your life, you do not have it figured out. If you think left is the correct decision for the next big choice that you have, guess what? It might be right, and you will never know the difference in your life because you, after you make the decision, you still won't have it figured out. That's the reality that you live in. That's the reality that I live in. And God is compassionate toward that. Sometimes we put so much weight on one decision. We put so much weight on making one choice. And we think that everything that God has for us is hinging on this one thing that we do. When in reality, the heart of God is to be compassionate and loving toward people that take what he has for them and somehow figure out a way to mess it up. And yet he's compassionate and loving toward us. That's you. You're them. They're you. And thank God for that. Because while we have mess-ups and mishaps and struggles, God maintains his mercy, his kindness, and his compassion. That's our story. That's their story. That's the first thing we got to think about. Okay, the second thing is this, that God does and always has desired for you to come from and to have a healthy family. That's the second thing. The fact that God is willing to deal with this in order to push his vision down the road means that, that the idea of healthy, protected families is really high on his priority list. And therefore, God does and always has desired for you and me and all of his people to come from healthy, protected families. That's his vision for you that you would have a family, and that family would be beautiful, that family would be well functioning, and that he would protect that family. Not just that he would be like, oh, if it's screwed up, I'm going to cast it to the side, but that he desires to protect it. He desires to guard it. And he'll put things in place in order to guard it and to protect it. It has always been that his desire is a family that's together, that's not separate, that's not torn apart, that's not destroyed by unfaithfulness, but retains its value, retains its protection, retains its safety, and he's willing to protect that. That's a huge part of the reason, and I want you to hear what I'm saying, because I'm going to talk about our church for a second. And I'm not good at this. I'm, I'm usually pretty bad at this, so the fact that I remember to put this in the notes means that I'm growing in some way. This is a huge part of the reason why we're starting a family support ministry. Because we have a deep conviction. I have a deep conviction, and therefore I want to, not forcefully, but firmly encourage you to have a deep conviction that God desires healthy families, that he builds beautiful things on the foundation of healthy, protected families. And that's a part of the reason why we would go so far to say we're going to contribute, uh, put a lot of our finances that we're going to do things like, you may notice that we don't have a ton of things going on during the week all the time. You don't have a women's ministry event every week. You may not have, like, like small group, you know. There are times where we definitely cancel small I'd be canceling small group. The people in my small group know. I'd be like, I'm tired, y'all. Um, but some of that is because I want to give you space, not just to say we got to do churchy things, but to say we have to do kingdom things. Because life isn't just about going to church and saying, how can I fill my life with churchy things? 
How can I go to a men's group, a women's group? How can I go to a Bible study? How can I, how can I go and do something at church with church people? But it's likewise about going out into a community where there are hurting and struggling families and saying, how can I contribute to them becoming whole and healthy? I want to give you that space. And so I want to encourage you to take advantage of that space. Feel convicted that that's worth doing. That when we go to Impact Dove Springs, it's not just about giving out uh, food, but it's likewise about blessing families and helping them get by so that there can be a bridge on which we're able to share the love of God. This is a value of mine, and therefore it's a value, I hope, of yours as a community that, that we share this value together. I'm going to let, let y'all do that, and then I'm going to ask y'all to come back this way. All right, there we go. He has a vision for families. He wants to protect families. And as a result, he's always wanted you to have a family. And for some of us, I'm going to be honest, that makes complete sense. You came from a good family. We talked about this last week or two weeks ago. Like, y'all had dinner together. At the dinner table, they were like, hey, how was, what was your best and worst part of the day? And everybody shared it. And then someone was like, oh, you had a really hard day? Let's pray for you. And it was this beautiful, wholesome thing, right? What are some of those shows, the, like, little house on the prairie vibes, right? Like, What's the other? Seventh Heaven is like our generation's version of Little House on the Prairie, right? And so, like, it gives us that kind of vibe, right? That was your childhood. And so, as a result, you know, oh, God values families. I value families. I care about families. And you understand God's provision and protection of it, and you want that for your own life. But for some of us, it's hard to understand because we didn't have it, right? Maybe you didn't have a great family. Maybe you didn't grow up in a great family environment, and maybe you don't understand the value of it because you've never experienced it. And so you don't know how valuable it can be. And you see your life as largely being fine without it. Maybe you don't understand the value of it because you have become who you are today largely without it. So why do you need to keep going in life with it or seek after it? For some of us, on another end, we, we didn't have it, but we value it because we didn't have it. And so maybe, maybe you're in the situation where you, you want to have it. You're fighting to have a healthy family in the ways that you can, whether it's, whether it's husband, wife, child, whether it's roommates, whether it's church family. But you know I value it because you never had it, but you feel like you're behind the eight ball because you don't know what to do with it. You're trying to build it, but you struggle because you've never had any example of it. So you're trying to figure out why you can't make it happen and how you're struggling in it, but you know, God, I wish I could have this. Or maybe you're bitter at God because you had a great family, but now you don't. And whether it's because of the various reasons that that can happen, the various types of loss, now it feels like that place that you found so much security, so much safety is gone, and maybe now you're a bit bitter, not at the idea of family, but at the idea of God. Because where is his vision for family in your life? No, what, no matter what group you're in, I want to encourage you that God does and has always and always will desire for you to have a family, an incredible family. That's always been his heart for you. And what sin and unfaithfulness or sickness or disease has done to take that from you or to prevent you from having it does not at all change how God desires and what God desires for you. That's precisely and exactly why Jesus takes the cross, so that sin and death could be defeated by his life, so that unfaithfulness um, and, and, and corruption could be overcome by his faithfulness and love. And deep down, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter where you come from, he's meeting that desire in you because you have it no matter who or where you are.
no matter what you've done, no matter how you've struggled, no matter whether you've had it or you haven't, that's your heart's desire. He longs to provide it for you. I think about my son, of course, uh, in this situation, because uh, he's three and he's trying to learn how to regulate his emotions, so that's what we try to help him do, right? He'd be saying outlandish things. We'd be coming back around like, hey, brother, what are you feeling right now? And he'd be like, you're not my dad anymore. And I'm like, no, I, I get that, but what are you feeling, right? Like, and, you know, do you feel angry or sad? Sadness is this, anger is this. Okay, I feel angry, help him through it, blah, blah, blah. Um, those are our best moments. But in our worst moments, some of y'all may relate to this. Uh, it is also really difficult because he's, he'd be saying outlandish things. I mean outlandish things. He gets upset and be like, hey, stop playing with that, buddy, please. Can you, can you try and play with something different? And he'll be like, it's the worst thing ever. It's all your fault. Hey, all right. Uh, and he'll be like, you're not my dad anymore. I don't want to be a part of this family. Like, bro, you're three. Calm down. You don't even know what you're talking about right now. And then in our worst moments, you know, you be, and I, this is not an advocacy for this type of, of response. I'm just merely letting you into our struggles and showing you what God has shown me from our struggles. Right? You'd be looking back and be like, fine, man, I'm not your dad anymore. If you don't want to be a part of our family, the door's right there. And instantaneously, my man be like, no, <laughs> no, I want you to be my dad. I don't want, I love our family. And it's like, okay, man, I'm sorry. And right away, I start feeling super horrible. I'm like, no, 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 I'm just kidding, bro. I'm always going to be your dad. You're a part of our family. I'm so sorry I said that, you know, X, Y, and Z. But it's so, it's so, I'm, I'm going to be very honest. I use it as an example, not just to provide a comedic aside, but also because I really do think we're that in so many ways. The deepest longing of our heart is to have a family, to be a part of a family. And so many times we've had bitter, frustrating, scary experiences in life that made us angry because things didn't go our way, because things didn't go the way we hoped for. And our response oftentimes is to go, I don't want this anymore. I don't want you anymore. And the moment the threat of saying, okay, fine, it's not yours, the deepest part of our hearts goes, no, I want that. I really do. I'm sorry that I've made it to where I don't. I'm sorry that I've said so many ways that I don't. I'm sorry that I've closed my heart off. I'm sorry that I've said I can't trust anyone. I'm sorry that I don't let people in because the deepest aching of my heart actually is that I want a family. That's all of us. And I wanna tell you, if you're sitting there going, no, not me, you just don't know you. You just don't know you. Do a little work on you and you instantaneously figure out that is you. And so God desires to protect families, okay? And so here's the thing. Some of you might be like, all right, so this verse isn't what I thought it was about. God seems to value family a lot, but apparently God doesn't care about this sex thing very much. Incorrect. All right, so as we move forward into the biblical story, right, we arrive at Jesus, uh, we, and we arrive at our next point who's gonna, it's gonna be brought to us by sponsored by Jesus. Um, and that next point is this, that God desires to help people be whole. God desires, to, God desires healthy families, and he wants to protect them, but likewise, God desires to help people be whole. As the story of the Bible progresses, friend, we, of course, arrive at Jesus. And early in Jesus' ministry, he speaks about this commandment specifically. It's in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. And he says this, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That's our verse today. But I tell you, Everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. For it is better that you would lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, 
cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you would lose one part, one of the parts of your body, than for your whole body to go into hell. Now let's pause for one second. Really aggressive language about eyes and hands in this. And I want you to know that Jesus never looks at his disciples like, cut it off, right? He doesn't look at his disciples and do that. So we know right from the jump that he's not advocating for you to actually hurt yourself, right? John Stott, who's a famous preacher, uh, if you don't know him, you can check him out. He has a lot of heady stuff, a lot of nerdy stuff, so I like him. But if you don't enjoy him, that's fine too. But he said the best application of this idea of gouging out eyes and cutting off hands is simply don't look that way. To fight, to preserve your imagination by simply not looking that way. And that's the idea that I think Jesus is presenting here. I want to put that on the table before we move forward. Because people have also, just like the Hebrew and the Israelites in Exodus 20, misapplied some, some commands. Likewise, people have misapplied some commands with this guy and gone a little bit far. And I don't want that to be you. So this is not, he's not talking about cutting things off. What he is talking about is actually fighting. Giving yourself to preserve yourself away from temptation. But here's the thing. In Jesus' day, this was an important topic because... After centuries of people talking about what God had said in, in Exodus 20, uh, and, and the story progressed, it had been even more misapplied. And so at this point, right, it's not even about the idea of protecting families anymore. It's mainly rooted in the idea of saying, don't steal another person's wife. That's the deal. Back then, we wanted to protect families. We wanted to preserve that. We wanted to protect our heritage and our lineage. By the time Jesus arrives on the scene, the interpretation of that has lost even more meaning and it now becomes, don't seal another person's wife. That is contextually what's happening. We know that from the, the, the rabbinical teachings and writings from Jesus' day, that it was really rooted in the idea of don't steal another person's wife. That's not right. But here's the thing. Jesus knows better than that. He knows better than that misapplication. Because Jesus is not a better interpreter of the scriptures. He's not a better interpreter of the Bible. He's the author of the Bible. And so he's more than just a prophet that comes to share God's desires for his people. He is that. But he, he's God himself coming to show and display God's vision for his people. He's more than just a good teacher who's coming to provide good instruction away from misinterpretation. He is that. But he's likewise God in the flesh coming to look at people and say, this is what I actually meant. You may have misapplied it, but here's what actually is happening and what he meant was this, that he desires people to be whole. He desires people to be whole. Here's the thing. The Israelites had focused so much on what the physical action of adultery was or was not. Who was committing adultery? When were they committing adultery? Under what context were they committing adultery? What was adultery? What's not adultery? Right? All the little ifs, ands, buts, and questions uh, that they had, what the consequences of adultery were. And here's the thing. They were so focused on adultery that they had completely lost what sexual wholeness was. That wasn't even on the table anymore. What was on the table was adultery and how to avoid becoming caught in adultery. What had been taken off the table was sexual wholeness. And hear me, some of us grew up in this exact thing. Some of us grew up in this exact experience. That you were so focused because of your parents' instruction, because of your church's instruction, because of your mentor's instruction, that you were so focused on not having sex that your vision of sexual wholeness was always singularly that you shouldn't have sex. That was it. That sexual wholeness for you meant you just avoid sex and everything else you just stuff it. That's not even on the table. What's on the table is avoid sex. 
And for some of us, the moment you lost that, the moment you lost that idea of wholeness, the moment you lost that idea of purity, you lost a part of yourself that even to this day you're trying to get back. You're trying to get it back today. And this may have happened years, decades ago. When in reality, and I want to say this as an encouragement to you, I want to say this as relief to you, in reality, sex itself, in Jesus' view and vision of sexual wholeness, sex itself is just an expression of the bigger issue. It's just an expression of the bigger system, right? The sexual desires come from our emotional desires. They come from our mental needs. They come from our trauma as well as our health. So the interpreters of the scriptures in Israel had focused so much on making sure people weren't committing adultery that they had lost sight as to whether people were whole. And that's the vision of God for sexual wholeness. And when Jesus comes and he starts saying, hey, right, that part of your imagination that gives way to this, that part of your, that part of your heart that leads you really questioning whether this is something you want or, or fantasizing or using your imagination in this way, it's not a result of strictly physical need or desire. It's the result of mental, emotional needs and realities and trauma and brokenness and, and desires for affirmation and desires for fulfillment, desires for some form of status and, and all these other things that are happening. And so Jesus comes in and he introduces the idea that adultery doesn't start with a physical action. It starts in the imagination. It starts in the heart. It starts in what moves you, what motivates you. Because that's the idea of the heart. He's not saying emotions. It doesn't just start from emotions. It starts from what motivates you. What do you hope you get out of it? What do you want out of it? Jesus understands that our sexual wholeness is poured out from our actual wholeness. They're not separated. They're married. One is the child of the other. And when unwhole people, when broken, hurting people are engaging in sexual desire, sexual brokenness comes from it. But when whole people, people that are understanding their, their, the amount that they're loved, they're understanding their needs, they're having those needs met or working toward having those needs met, the outpouring is then sexual wholeness. One comes from the other. The one doesn't pour into the father. Wholeness actually creates sexual wholeness. Now, a lot of us don't see sexual desire and temptation that way. I'm going to be honest, a lot of us don't see that. I didn't either until a few years ago. I read a book called You Can Change by a man named Tim Chester. Uh, I've read through it two or three times now. Third time was like, I, I half read through. I got to like chapter four, and I was like, all right, I got other things to do. But the first two times were real powerful. Um, when I read that book, he has something from the beginning of the book called a change project. And here's the thing, with the change project, he actually specifically asks you, I want you to zero in, do this with somebody else, I want you to zero in on a, a, an aspect of your heart, your actions, your life. He specifically says the more specific you can be, the better. And I want you to focus on that thing, write it down, share it with the person you're working through this with. And then every chapter begins to unveil something about how the heart desires something, what motivates us. Why do you want that thing? Why do you need that thing? And I'll be honest, the first time I worked through this, I'm gonna spare you details here, inappropriate to do them as any, by any you know, stretch. I, I, I tackled the idea of lust in my first time working through this book. And what I learned about my heart was so much more than what I learned about my body. My body was so second place by the time I got to the end of that book that I realized what was motivating me toward any idea of lust was not the idea of physical satisfaction, but the idea of emotional lack. 
that I lacked something emotionally. I needed something emotionally. I needed something mentally. Maybe I didn't get certain things that weren't connected to, to romantic or sexual desires at all, but maybe it was related to relational, familial, parental, I mean, it's childhood stuff where sex wasn't associated with it at all, but my wholeness in those areas was affecting my wholeness in this area. It was one big network of things. And through the book, I had to really do some like aggressive and active searching and, and, and soul work, and it was hard. And I cried a lot. And the guy that I was working through it with was like, dude, he would be like, me too. Like, you know, he'd be like, I'm learning that I'm all messed up as well. And that I don't need to just like turn off the TV when there's a sex scene, but I need to actually make sure that I'm like, my childhood self is okay. You know, like this is the type of things that we were learning. But it really unveiled to me how deeply this type of verse where, where Jesus steps up and says, you've heard it said, whoever commits adultery, da, da, da. But I'm saying in your heart, if you've done it, you're already guilty of it. Because if your heart's already there, the brokenness is already present. The only way you can overcome the brokenness is by becoming healthy and whole. That's how this, this that, that's how you're not, that's how you overcome this idea, right, through, through becoming whole. You want the book, holler at your boy, I got it. You have it. It has a lot of underlines and a lot of notes, but you got it. And here's the thing, friend. God doesn't just want you to have sex or to not have sex. He wants you to be whole. And he wants to help you be whole. Sexually, yes. Holistically, more. Holistically, that, that overall, you would be healthy. You would be whole. And here's the thing. Why? Why does God want healthy, protected families made up of whole people? Why would he be willing to help us grow into wholeness? Why would he be there to help us walk in to being healthier in order to protect these families and to, 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 to make them healthy? I really do. One, he loves you. I'm not trying to skip that. But I do think it is to show his heart to the world. Uh, this is not a cop-out, I promise. But in Ephesians 5, 32, Paul has an incredible idea. And he says, this mystery, speaking about marriage, is profound. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Uh, what is he saying? He is saying that marriage shows Christ and us. That the idea of committing to one another, the idea of serving one another, the idea of sacrificing for one another, the idea of laying down our life for one another, the idea of building each other up, that specific idea is linked to Christ and the church. And that means the idea of family, that marriage gives way to family, it gives way to kids, it gives way to uncles, it gives way to all these other things, homes and, and X, Y, and Z, that each function of this idea of family, each function of this idea, whether it's fatherhood or motherhood or marriage or being a child or being a sibling, that it all somehow, if we tease at it and look at it enough, displays and shows God's character. It displays and shows God's character. That's precisely why when you watch Seventh Heaven, something in you is like, man, I wish I had that. Because the heart's longing is not for Seventh Heaven. The heart's longing is for the crown of heaven. The heart's longing is for Jesus. But when you actually watch Seventh Heaven, something in you goes, man, I wish I had that. But the longing of your heart is actually, I wish I had him. Because it shows him. It displays him. He's the prize for which our hearts long after. So every section of this idea of family, 
when healthy people, healthy and protected families made up of whole or becoming more whole people are functioning well, they're loving each other, they're sacrificing for one another, they're giving to each other, they're submitting to one another, meaning they're not saying, I'll obey you anyway, but they're saying, I'll love you sincerely and dearly. When this is happening, the world around us goes, I wish I had that. And they realize, I actually wish I had him. Because it shows his heart, his character, his love to the world around us. That's God's vision for family, that he would have healthy families made up of whole people that show his heart to the world around us. Healthy families made of whole people that show his heart to the world around us. And yet, if me and you were being honest, many of us, been following Jesus for years, been Christians for years. Um, and we don't feel this. We don't experience this. And it forces us to ask, how could this be God's vision for family when I don't hardly see it anywhere? I don't see it in my life. I don't see it in their lives. How could this be? And friend, I want to level with you. This family doesn't start with you finding it. This type of family doesn't start with you finding it, locating it, saying, here it is. I've stumbled upon it, pre-made for me. Like a fast food drive-through. I pull up, exchange my money, get whole family made up of whole people, healthy and protected, got to give my salvation, and then I get it. That's not how it works. It doesn't start with you finding this perfect family. It starts with you finding the perfect one. It starts with you finding Jesus and ends with you creating family. That's where it starts. It starts with finding him, and it ends with creating family, not finding it. Because it's Jesus that perfectly embodies this vision. Right, he comes from the Godhead, filled with love, right? He is, he is adored and he adores. It's the perfect vision of family. He is the only complete and whole person in every shape, form, or fashion. And he forms incredible relationships with those around him. Not just his parents and his brothers and his sisters, but he goes out and out of misfits and marginalized, he creates brothers and sisters. He creates a family and brings those that feel outcast and helps them feel loved. And he shows those that are unfaithful his own faithfulness. And through it, he shows God's heart to them in ways that they've never experienced. And his touch of grace helps the broken feel a little bit more whole. And his touch of mercy helps the lost feel a little bit more found. And it makes all of us feel a little bit more whole. And yet he takes the cross like an orphan alone and empty and hurting and asking where people are. So that you and me, whether you had a great family or whether you're out here alone by yourself, could be brought to the heavenly Father so that you could be loved, so that you could receive that touch that makes the broken feel a little more whole and the lost feel a little more found. We've been given a family friend. We've been given a family 
so that we can be, so we can express and show who God is and, and, and really share that which we've received from the Father to show his heart to other people. That's the vision of God, that you would be found, you would be healed, that you would understand what it means to be loved, that you would understand the aching of your heart for heaven, you would understand the aching of your heart for Jesus, and as you build that relationship, and as you grow into who God has made you to be under the protection of his own love, that you would then be sent out to create and form families around you. That's the starting point. The ending point is you surrounded with people that say, I would die for you. I love you. I feel a little more whole just being with you. Not because it's you, but because you're channeling that which you've received from him. That's where we're at. That, that's the invitation of the gospel. The gospel forms a family. The Bible says we're a new creation. And it has to do with sin. It has to do with adoption. It has to do with all these other theological ideas that we don't have time to get into at this moment. But it means that you're his. It means that there's no more trace of the past. And it means you've been given a new family. You've been offered a new life. And it's our job then to go and shape and form it through the power of his spirit. That's our responsibility. If you've walked around aching and angry at people because they're not who you hope they were, the response of God is, I am who you hope I am. And therefore, I invite you to become who you wish they were through knowing and following and loving and being loved by me. That's our invitation today, friends. That's your invitation, it's my invitation. That is the vision of God for family. And it's offered in, in really simple words, do not commit adultery. And the thing is, we've tried to mess that up. Humans have tried to mess that up for thousands and thousands of years. And yet the vision of God was never relinquished by God, but it was fought for, it was chased after, it was pushed forward, it was brought to us in the, in the person of Jesus. And through his work on the cross, he's established it as a reality. And the invitation to you is to come and receive it, to shape it, to form it. Now, how can we do this, right? Some simple takeaways. I think that that we can go with some applications and then close up here. Um, first, I'm gonna beat the gong here, the dead, and the gong is a dead horse. Uh, understand God's love for you. I've probably said this almost every week that we've been talking about the Ten Commandments, and I will probably say it for the remainder of the last three weeks. It's just easy to forget. It's easy to forget in the midst of the hardship and the brokenness and the frustration that you feel and that I feel. It's just easy to forget that God's not up there like wrapping his hands around themselves like he's Mr. Burns from The Simpsons, just like, oh, yes. That it, he mourns, that he's sad, that it breaks his heart, that that's not his vision for your life, that that's not what he had hoped for in designing the world. It's so easy to forget that. And I think the challenge to it is to understand the depths of his love for you. So understand his love. Do what you can to grow in more understanding of that. Read the Bible. But we've learned from this, this, this sermon, don't read one verse of the Bible. Read the Bible. Don't be like, my favorite verse is Psalm 119. So I read that every day. Read something else. 
Read the Gospels. Read the whole story. Buy a little study Bible that takes you from Genesis to Revelation because it tells one big story of a God who says, do not commit adultery, and then people mess that up, and so he comes back, and he does more, and he does more, and he does more until he can finally put it in front of us. This is my vision for you. Right? So, so read the Bible. Read the whole Bible. It will, it will speak to you in ways that reading Exodus 20, verse 14, won't do on its own. So read the whole Bible. Get a study Bible. Get a companion reading material, whatever it is. Talk to me. I'm, never mind. I'm a nerd. You're, you know that about me. Talk to me. I love to help you in some way to guide you in, in, in some suggestions for reading or companions. But pray. Go to community groups. Surround yourself with people that don't just mourn with you but point you toward hope. And that sucks because there's a tension where we do want to just be joined in our sadness, and there is room for that. But oftentimes when we think one way for caring for us is the only way to care for us, we become fat on just one type of food. When in reality, we're meant to have people that surround us and go, man, we're here to mourn with you, to be sad with you, to cry with you. But ultimately, we're also here to point you to him who has overcome death and overcome sin and overcome pain. Have those friends. Have those friends. Okay? Now, so understand God's love for you. Second. Uh, do the work of understanding, like, your trauma and your experiences. I just said that I read that book. That was probably six years ago. How long ago was that? Yeah, it was six years ago. And I'll tell you, that started to change how I was approaching so much of my life, to change how much I was, I mean, like, the way I was approaching so much of my own sin patterns, so much of my own disappointments, my discouragements, even my anger or frustration with God. And so see a counselor. Start reading some. I mean, if you don't want to take that step yet and you want to kind of dip a toe into this before you go there, I get it. Read something. You can read. You can change. But there's other people in here that can offer incredible book recommendations. Get an audio book. Dog, I will give you the $25 necessary in order to get an Audible subscription and then double down and be like, I'll take them three credits that you're offering me for another like $10 or $15. I'll just give you that money so that you can listen to an audio book. If it's like, I don't, I don't read, fine, I don't care. I'll give you the audio book and then just do it. Just do it. There's people who even give you great recommendations for what you get. I mean, like the Allens there have had a lot of great encouragements and, and recommendations for me. Meredith Rester has had a lot of fun recommendations that I've taken a look at some of the stuff she's looked at, uh, stuff that I've looked at. You have people here that are willing to recommend those things to you. Take advantage of that. It's going to take work. The last thing I want to say about that is it's going to take work. It's exactly why Jesus uses such extraordinary descriptions when he says, gouge an eye out, cut a hand off. Not because it's like, hey, just go without a hand. It's because it takes work to actually figure out what being whole means. It takes work to figure out what direction you need to go to even get there. So do the work of understanding your trauma and your experiences. And the third one I'm going to give you is just identify some the, the hot you know, trigger language uh, or, or kind of you know, culturally relevant speak. Find your safe spaces. Find what a safe space is for you. Take advantage of it. I'm going to be very honest with you. Sometimes, and you know this, I know this, but sometimes you got to be reminded of it. Sometimes you just need to be what's called cathartic. You just need to go let it out. You need to go cry. You need to go share. You need to go be angry. You need to go be furious. You just need to go be sad. You just need to go be sorrowful. You just need a space to do that. That's what catharsis means. It means just letting it all out. Sometimes you need that. Find some safe spaces. Take advantage of them. Let it all out. Maybe when it's all out on the table, 
you end up taking some steps to figure out what's going on in your own heart and mind. I try desperately to make our community groups that. I'm trying to build a culture as the leader of our church to influence those of you that lead community groups and those of you that attend a community group to have a specific vision for community groups, that they would be safe in that way, that your, your struggles would be greeted with compassion and not judgment or fear when you bring them there. Those are the type of spaces you want, and so find some of those. If you don't have one, holler at me. I will provide you one. And I know people in here that will provide you one. So identify your safe spaces and take advantage of it. I'm way above on time, so I got to go. But um, I hope that this encourages us. I hope it challenges us. I also hope it displays God, the depths of God's love for his people, that he wants you to have a healthy and protected family made up of whole people that show his heart to the world. And he's gone to incredible lengths in order to provide that to you. Incredible lengths. So today, let's make a commitment to pursue that, to know him, to understand his love for us, and to start creating that family in our own lives. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. For today, thank you, God, for your word that is, is not always easy, that we're taking centuries of interpretation. We're taking centuries uh, of a word that, I mean, words and ideas that are very old, and we're translating them into our own world. And yet when we do the work to do that, it actually shows us a vision of your heart and love for us that's incredible, that's encouraging. So thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your heart for families and the heart to put us into one. That as you saw the sorrow that, that sin has caused in creating broken families in our world, you gave up and, 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 and put yourself broken so that we could, could inherit a family that's based on you, based on perfection. So we love you. We thank you. I pray that we would do the work of going to you, of identifying what, what experiences have hurt us and, and go to understanding your love and how your great sacrifice and how your heart meets those. From there, that you would send us out to form these incredible families that you have a vision for. So we love you, we thank you. Place this in your hands in Jesus' name, amen.